This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Support for this podcast comes from U.S. Bank. When it's time for a new credit card, the best ones do way more than just buy stuff. And that's why U.S. Bank offers credit cards that make every day more rewarding. Earn cash back. Score points when you shop, dine out, travel, or binge watch. Or get a low intro APR. U.S. Bank credit cards were designed to fit your lifestyle. So make every day more rewarding. And check out usbank.com slash credit card. U.S. Bank credit cards are issued by U.S. Bank National Association N.D. Some restrictions may apply. Member FDIC. Welcome to the East Coast Offense Podcast. This is Chris Liss, your host. And I am very pleased to be joined by a... Well, Scott's been on this podcast before. But uh, not for a while. So I'm real pleased to be joined by Scott Pianowski of Yahoo Sports. And uh, what's up, Scott? What's going on? Not a lot. Uh, yeah, it's great to be talking some sports with you. And um, I'm sorry we won't be able to talk 25 chapters about the Golden State Warriors, but you can pick up with that <laughs> when Dalton comes back. But I'm going to ask you a question. I know he starts off a lot of the podcast by hitting you with a question. As we're taping this on Thursday, the Brewers are beating the Cubs 9 nothing Now, assuming they can hold on to that lead, and I guess with Zach Davies, you never really know. But if if the Brewers win this game, they're four and a half games up on the Cubs. Just give me a state of I, – I made a bet with our friend Teddy Bell, just a, just a fun bet about maybe a month or five weeks ago. He gave me 3-1 to one on all the non-Cub teams in that division to win the division, and wow. he has the Cubs. I'm wondering now, what what are the uh, – let's assume the Cubs lose today and they go, they go out four and a half and – I want to make something clear. I, I know we live in a hate and hype society that if I say anything negative about the Cubs, people are going to be like, oh, you're burying the Cubs. Then they make a big comeback. They'll say, see, you said their season was over. I'm not saying anything like that. A lot of talent here. There's a lot of resources. They might go out and you know, improve the team. Obviously, a lot of players could play better. All I care about is you know, the theory of what are the true odds of the Cubs if they go four and a half out at the end of today? What would be the fair odds of them winning the division? Versus the field, I think it's less than even money, right? I, I think it'd be like 40, 60 against. You what take you the field at this point? Th- Straight up, yeah. They're four and a half behind the Brewers. How far out are the Cardinals? I think they're right behind Chicago, maybe a, a game or so. If you, if you do sort of like the preseason projections, the baseball prospectus way or whatever, Clay Davenport, whoever does it ostensibly rigorously, um, you know, the best team will have like 92, 93 wins. And you, you figure so in half a season – that would be 46 wins. And then so all you got to do is be like a, a 500 team to to sustain a four-and-a-half game lead, right, against a, an elite team. I mean, this is one of those things where it's, it's always hard to tell when does a bad start or a good start become a bad season or a good season. I, I think our mutual friend Joe Sheehan, and I'm, I'm not in any way picking on Joe. He's awesome. He writes a baseball newsletter. Go subscribe it to it and read it. I think he had the Cubs winning 101 games before the season. So I guess my question also would be, if we were going to project the Cubs for the rest of the year, I know they're a little bit past the halfway point, I think, now. 
I mean, do we expect them to win 60% of their games or do we expect them to be around this 500 team? I mean, who are the Cubs? How good right. are they now? So, you know, it's funny. This came up on the radio show today. I know you were on the show, but before you were on, um, I read something a couple of years ago that the steamer projections preseason were a better predictor of second half performance of players than the current season. Mm-hmm. A, a guy like, you know, Carlos Gonzalez say has had a bad first half. But historically, the preseason projections for Carlos Gonzalez, and at least according to Steamer, he was like a top 20 hitter, top 20-ish hitter, um, would be a more accurate projector for his rest of season than his first half stats. And obviously, again, like Judge and others, there are probably many, many exceptions to this. But on the whole, on average, Mm -hmm. the preseason was better than half a season of data. And so how does that work for a team, right? I mean, is the preseason projection more accurate for the second half than what they've done so far. And, you know, I, I think it depends, right? It, it depends if there's been fundamental changes about the team. And that's a question, you know, is, is Jake Arietta? he had a really good start last time out. Is he fundamentally just not the guy he was projected to be anymore? You know, is, you know, Kyle Hendricks was hurt and obviously last year looks like kind of an outlier. I mean, are some of these guys just not who they are? And it's not just going to regress to it. It's just, that this is no longer the same team that we thought it was before the season, or will it regress to the mean? Also, their defense, and I, look, I, I just take defense at, at a very limited kind of step in. I, I'm not on the cutting edge of defensive metrics, and I think a lot of times defensive metrics have led us down the wrong paths. But I know that the, the Cubs, I almost called them the Bears, the Cubs were really good about converting outs, uh, batted balls into outs last year, and that rate has fallen way down. And I, I don't know, you know what is a normal rate, or I, I don't watch the team on a daily enough basis. You know, I, I pay attention to them, but I'm not like glued to every pitch. I couldn't tell you if there's a good example of why their defense isn't nearly as good this year. If, if that's related to the pitching, it's related to the weather, it's related to the quality of the gloves they have, I, you know, the, the shifting, I have no idea what that is. All I know is they are not converting the outs anywhere near at the same efficiency level. Yeah, well, they had Schwarber in the outfield for a while. Yeah, Hayward was out. Uh, you know, they've, they've had a couple things happen. I don't know, but yeah, I would, I would say. Well, I'm gonna put a squirk under your head. You get to pick the field. You get to pick the Cubs. You the said field. you thought the field I was said, a little bit of a favorite. I'd say, I'd say, like I'd need like three to two to take the Cubs. Okay. Because okay. I think it's sixty forty against. I, I don't. There's nothing magic about the Cubs. You know, it's like oh, Joe Madden, Theo Epstein. They're gonna, they're gonna pull something magical to win this thing. Maybe, maybe not. Who would you if who would you bet on to win the whole the whole thing if you had to pick one team right now regardless of the odds? Um, I would probably take the Dodgers. I you know it really front, they have the front end pitching that makes sense. They hit a lot of home runs. I mean, you know, it matters if Alex Wood can really keep this going. But Alex, you know, so the Dodgers here the Dodgers were a preseason favorite. They were one of the preseason favorites, and they added basically a Cy Young award worthy pitcher. I mean, if the season ends now. Alex Wood's got to be your Cy Young winner. I mean, he's been the best pitcher. He was on the DL, but he's been the best mm. pitcher in baseball. I mean, Sale has a pretty good case, too. I have so many old, like, previous year shares of Alex Wood, and I have none of it now. It's it's not fun to be setting it out. No, I have I have a couple, but I was just pure luck because I happened to have Rich Hill in the uh, NFBC main event when he went down. I just figured I'd hedge and overpay for, uh, you know, 6% of my budget or 7% of my budget for Wood, and, and little do I know. Now Hill's pitching well, too, so yeah. it's been pretty good, but... You know, so so they basically were a preseason one of the preseason favorites. They add a Cy Young winner, and then they add an MVP in Clay Bellinger. I mean, sorry, Cody Bellinger. So it's like 
you already, you know, you look at the Nats. They were a preseason favorite, and they lose Adam Eaton. Trey Turner's out indefinitely. You know, it's like they've lost people. The Dodgers have added people. Right. I mean, with the Nationals, it always comes down to how healthy Scherzer and Strasburg, you know, who hasn't missed the start this year in a season where so many people are hurt. I, I would think that if Strasburg has any kind of a hiccup physically, because they're so far ahead, I know the, the Braves are kind of cosmetically close, but you would think that the Nationals, you look at what Houston's doing now where McCullers didn't seem seriously hurt. They just skipped him a start, put him on the 10-day DL. He's never thrown to a big innings count before. I'm curious how you handle that in fantasy, too. I, I got a lot of crap from people when I said McCullers was a great guy to sell high maybe six weeks ago. And the idea is, look, when I, I said sell high, I wasn't like, you know, throw him out there and take the first offer you get or, or you know, absolutely get rid of him today no matter what. I mean, I, the idea was that somebody would give you a lot for him. But because he's never gone over a high innings threshold and Houston is so far ahead in that division, I got to figure that. If he has, if he has the sniffles, they're not going to give him a start. I mean, they're going to try to baby his innings, a lot of five and six inning starts, skip starts here and there. I know he's great when he's on the mound, but he also has an injury history. I, there's a guy I would, I would be at least, I'd at least know what the market is. You don't have to trade him. Maybe people, you know, people need pitching though. Uh, maybe you could get an offer that doesn't make sense. I mean, I, every league is different, and, and you know, if you're in a league with idiots, it doesn't matter. But I would at least try. I would at least take the temperature of the room. What do you think of the trade I made with Jeff in uh, Friends and Family? I gave him Strasburg, Gaussman after like one decent start, and he actually had a really good start for Jeff. His next start out, uh, he's not even I part threw of in the Sean Doolittle, who would you know he's got a couple saves. He was pitching really well, and I threw in Danny Valencia, who's a useful player in a in a fourteen team league, and I got Arenado in three scrubs. What do you think of that deal? Well, it was an easy trade for you to make because you're pitching and you're talking about it on the show today. You have such good pitching in so many different leagues. In the case of the Friends and Family League, you not only have the best pitching in the league, but it's by such a great margin that you have the luxury of trading Strasburg and not feeling the pinch that somebody well, else would. But I'm would way feel. back in innings, so like I'm going to eat a lot of bad starts as I catch up. And I think I've made the most moves in that league, and there is a cap on moves, and I'm getting a little bit like nervous. Yeah, because... there is a cap. It's supposed to be 125, but you never know. Maybe this year Brandon won't push it up. <laughs> no, I'm going to play. But I w- I'm not going to cheat. Like I, I, he probably wouldn't. He probably just let it go. By the way, I, you know, I, people used to give me crap all the time because I'd make more pickups than anybody, and I was the person who pushed the hardest for the cap because I think. It was wrong. It got to the point where the people would just make pickups without any – there was never an opportunity cost. Just like I want to pick this guy up, I'm picking him up. And you didn't have to think about, well, wait a minute. Am I on unlimited? But like you know, in the other leagues that have fab and stuff, I mean maybe you can make zero bids or whatever. But at least you have to think if I am if I want this player, if I want Malik Smith, i got to pay up for him. If I want this new closer, I have to pay up for him. In the Friends and Family League when we were unlimited, it's, it's just there was no opportunity cost. It's just all you have to do is find a guy that you wanted more than another guy. And – and then you get the case of it's kind of funny in the friends and family league this year, the guy who's winning the league, uh, Salfino's team, he outsourced all the work to uh, another guy. I, I, Mike will tell you that he's doing some of the work, but all the pickups have the other person's name. I think his name is Jake Summers. He's I, I've talked to him on Twitter. He's in another league with me. He's a really good player, but I don't know what, isn't that kind of like giving out your free throws to somebody else? Right. I mean, anyway, I, I like the trade that you made. I'm using your analogy there, that free throw analogy. I like the trade that you made, especially in the shape that your team's in. I mean, Arenado, I, I know he's only having maybe a good season and not like an otherworldly season, but at any point that guy could go bonkers. I mean, obviously the weather warming up. I just think Colorado is a, is a place that, and everybody knows this, you're just going to start seeing ridiculous scores when, when the heat is oppressive in the summer months. 
I mean, a lot of times you don't see a lot of course field factor in early in the season, but I think it's a great time to get Arenado. And also, you, you trade Strasburg at his absolute peak. I don't blame Jeff for trading for him, but I mean, Strasburg, we've seen him get hurt a million times before. You get a feel like you got max value for him. Yeah, no, I definitely got him at full value. But I think part of that is that do we need to recalibrate what players are worth? Because before the season, you know, we'd be like, oh, Arenado is like a top five pick and Strasburg's like a third rounder. And now that so few pitchers have held up and that pitching is so scarce. If you have Strasburg, who struck out 13 his last time out, then, you know, that's one of the top six or seven starters in baseball. And it's so hard to find them. Whereas, like, yeah, Arenado has whatever he has, 16, 17 home runs. I haven't even checked. But so does Yonder Alonso. You know, there's plenty of guys who have more than that who you got it for nothing. So have Arenado's numbers now been kind of devalued and Strasburg's numbers now gone up in value? I would just be worried that you could be getting Strasburg at the wrong time. And Arenado is a guy who, could, in his range of outcomes, he, he could be the best hitter in, in fantasy in oh, the yeah. second. But that's always reasonable. And if I had a guy like Strasburg, it, at any point, if I felt I could cash in on him, like if I, if I had Scherzer in this league, I'd have two hands on him. I'd have three hands on him. I, I would hire somebody to watch Scherzer while I slept. Right. You know, I wouldn't want anybody to touch that guy. I wouldn't want anybody to touch um kershaw obviously i I don't think strasburg's in that tier he's just been hurt too many times the team doesn't have the incentive to push him he's got the type of he's got the body type where he's he's a big guy but he's not that thick uh i don't know i I think it's i think you're gonna be glad i'm not saying he's gonna fall apart or he's gonna gonna be a a collapse and anybody who you know disagree with me on strasburg before the season looks like this is the year you're gonna be right but i think you're gonna be happy you made this trade i'm just gonna leave it at that all right. I hope you're right. Um, I need to get back in it. I'm, I'm last in home runs, and it's pissing me off because I, I drafted Miguel Cabrera. I drafted Chris Davis with a C. I drafted, you know, Will Myers. I traded for Carlos Gonzalez. It's like, dude, I have plenty of power in my lineup. I drafted your whole team has to hit home runs now. I look at my team, it's like, wow, my whole, my whole team is like, you know, going to hit at least 20, it feels like. And some guys will hit 30 or 40. I have Mike Moustakis who might hit, have the quietest right. 45 or 50 home run season. And I'm not I'm not winning home runs. I'm, I'm behind like five teams. Right. That's what I'm saying. I've got no Mike Moustakis. i got no Aaron Judge. i got no Scott Schebler. You know, all these guys. i got no Logan Morrison in that. You know, it's like I'm, I just got the guys that were supposed to do it before the season. And my team is woefully uh, inadequate in home runs. And I'm like, all right, well, I just added Arenado. Maybe he'll hit 20 the rest of the way. But – you know, Chris Davis will come back off the deal. Maybe he'll go on a home run binge. But, man, I'm in a hole. And part of the reason I'm in a hole, and I talked about this with Jeff, is that I was I had Will Myers, Cabrera, and Chris Davis with a C. And what do they all play? They're all corners. So when Justin Smoke hit his sixth home run, I wasn't like, oh, I better go grab him because I was Love set that. there. Logan Morrison, same thing. All these guys who have gone crazy, most of them, not all of them, are corners. <laughs> so, like, you, it was like a huge mistake. You didn't know it at the time to lock in all these corners, not that you can't use the extra utility, but you just it just wasn't where my focus was. Right, which is, I always talk about the money hall problem, which the solution to the money hall problem is when you have more information, you should make that informed choice and switch. And that's how I feel about the waiver wire. Whatever you think about a player at the bottom of your roster in February or March, once you have the quote-unquote more information of the season, and this has turned into a great year for it. I, I'm not really cashing in on it. I'm having a very average to, to mediocre season, to be honest with you, but uh, this was a great year where it's like don't don't think about Ryan Zimmerman don't don't run an aud- a, a uh, you know a um, audit on him or or don't run a, a common sense check on him just he's hitting home runs he's in a good lineup pick him up just worry about it later yeah no it is it is really been extreme um, Dalton and I had talked about this before but like the whole 
calendar year, maybe a year and a half, there's been some just unbelievable uh, twists in reality. And we talked about how the you know Indians were up three one in the World Series and lost. The Cavs are up three one in the finals and lost. Uh, the Patriots were down twenty eight to three and lost and won and came back just unbelievably ridiculous. The Oscars they actually announced a winner for Best Picture. At which, at which point the odds were a million to one against anyone else winning it. And then it turned out that that was not actually the best picture. And, of course, we had the presidential election, which everybody was positive Clinton would win, and she lost. So, you know, and, and, Mike, and Mike Salfino was winning the Friends and Family League. Right, Mike Salfino. Probably the, the biggest upset of all those things. The, right. No, that's, yeah, that's, that's when you know it's really screwed up. But the fabric of reality has been sort of pulled out from under us. And now you've got like just the most random players hitting, you know, 20, 30 home runs. And it just makes me question like who the hell knows what's true anymore. Right. Like, well, could, it just, could it just be that the dice all came up six? I mean, I don't know. I mean, I mean, maybe it's just one of those years. I mean, these are the five it, biggest events. Okay. The Super Bowl, the NBA finals, the world series, the presidential election and the Oscars. Like, <laughs> those, I don't know what more, more, what events are more watched than those five. And they all had like the most ridiculous twists. Okay, but if what if what if I said to you before the season, look, I don't even watch the NBA, but it's going to be the Warriors over the Cavaliers in the finals, right? And then, and, sure. Then they win it. I'm like, hey, I called that one, right? Yeah, I mean, no, no, you know, no, sure. So. I, I I was just saying, 2016, the, the reversals that were just so improbable, each one individually improbable and collectively just mind-boggling. It's and so I've just been, you know, it's hard to believe been... Trump is president. I it, I'm not like my mind has not 100 percent accepted that. <laughs> it, it is. It is hilarious. Like I, I never watched like CNN because it's such garbage. I mean, it, as ridiculous as Trump is, like he's right about a couple things. Like CNN is garbage, and I caught some of it at the airport or something. And I see him like walking out of the White House, and I'm like, "What? That dude lives in the White House? He's not. He doesn't live in the White. Like, really? Donald Trump lives in the White House? That's absurd. You know, like that's it is. It's absurd. But then I just started thinking, like maybe like more stuff is absurd than we actually realize that we. Because we've been sort of inculcated with our own, you know, with our society, you grow up in a particular society and you have certain beliefs because your society believes things and you believe them too. And even if you question things, you still are a product of your society. When you go elsewhere, they don't have the same beliefs you do, not remotely, because they're just a product of a different society. And so the idea that, like, the president is this important person and he's this presidential person, all this stuff. Maybe that was crazy. We now know that that was crazy because the one in there has made a mockery of it. But maybe, you know, it, it, as normal as it looked on the outside, it wasn't that normal even before. I just believe in the random universe. I mean, there, there are some things that are more likely to happen because certain things are – draws things together. There are, there are things that we can't explain or we don't know about that are very logical if you knew how things work behind the scenes, stuff like that. But – to me, it's if you look at the clouds long enough, you'll start to see patterns, and you say, "Oh my God, I, I can't!" Now I see it. Now look, the there's there's a perfect cloud in the in the shape of I, Idaho. You know, I never noticed that before. The world's coming to an end. Just and again, I played the card I'm earlier, there, Scott. I'm already there. I played the card earlier that I said, you know, this has been the weirdest baseball season ever. But they they say that for like every football season in October, it will be said, "Oh, what a strange season it's been." Football seasons are snowflakes. They're, they're unique. You can't be more. I mean, can, can things have levels of uniqueness? I thought you were just binary. You're, you're unique or you're not. The season is unique or it isn't. To me, it, it's it's like that thing. One of my teachers used to have this thing where he'd ask everybody their birthday and he would predict, he would guarantee that two people would have the same birthday. But it's actually, that that's the plus EV thing. That right. When, more, when you have enough people, people in the room, 
chances right. are two of them have the same birthday, right? Exactly. Like so it, look, it looks like it's this big magician trick, but it isn't. It's just people don't understand how odds work yeah. and how probability but, works. But, uh, you know, so so the unique thing is interesting because it's like you get dealt a hand in poker, right? Right. And the particular hand that you have, like I got the seven of hearts, I got the five of clubs, I got the jack of spades, I got the queen of spades, and I got the, you know, two of diamonds. Oh, my God. I, that is such a rare hand. I am so amazed that I would get this particular hand. The odds that I would get this hand, it's like a royal flush. It's better because there's four ways to get a royal flush. There's only one way to get this particular hand. So amazing, right? They're all unique. But when you get the royal flush, you know, it's worth something. You know? <laughs> like, so it's like every hand that you get is a miracle. Like you're like, how did you get a royal flush? It's so amazing that you got a royal flush. It's so unlikely, which I actually got, and I take the opportunity to tell that story that I got a royal flush at a Vegas oh, casino good for you. and got two grand, a hat? two grand bonus. Put oh, a, a, two grand, a, two racks of green yeah. chips put on my uh, table because of it. And just, was that a winning? Did you end up ahead for the day? <laughs> yeah, I lost. I won like three hundred on the hand, a couple grand on the royal flush, and probably. T- I, I just, well, I'll tell the story in a second, but um, that, that's like one Golden State Warrior ticket for Dalton. I know. Yeah, he just eases up. But the, the actual funny thing is, a couple hands earlier. I had ace seven and Jeff had ten seven and the flop came six seven seven, and Jeff bet and I raised pretty big and I said Jeff you want to get out of my way and he said no man I got something I'm sorry he goes all in I call I got him you know dominated and a yeah, ten falls on the turn okay yeah. so he makes the full house I give him all my you know two hundred bucks and, and I could have been real you know tilty about it but I wasn't I was cool I was like all right you know whatever it's poker he won. It's my buddy. He takes all my money. You know, he shouldn't. He didn't deserve it. He should have just folded when I re-raised. Um, but uh, but I was cool for once in my life. I wasn't pissed. I wasn't bitter. And two, like a couple hands later, I get the royal. And and Jeff just by being at the table gets a hundred bucks. Everybody at the table got a hundred bucks. Actually, oh, nice. nice. Just because I got the royal. This is at like Bally's where they sold these bonuses, and I got like two grand or whatever it was, twenty one hundred, whatever it was up to at the time. Uh, and uh, I'm I'm. I'm pissed that I never I didn't take a, a, a photo of it but um but anyway so I like to tell the story just because I'm very proud and pleased with myself that I got a royal flush well you didn't you didn't take a photo of it because you're a smart person who accomplishes all sorts of things because you're smart because you think and you put you put work into anything and uh, a royal flush it's just like finding money on the street there was a great episode of Dr. Katz where the the lazy ne'er-to-well kid uh won money on a scratch ticket and he wanted to treat it like he had accomplished something. Like it was like the greatest accomplishment of his life. And the father was was putting the kibosh on that. You know, he didn't he didn't want to treat first of all, he didn't want to like throw a ball the money he won on future scratch tickets. I mean, we know the lottery is such a racket. But it was just funny how the kid just thought that was the greatest accomplishment. We should celebrate, you know, my glorious win and, and what it says about me. You know, what it says is you were dumb enough to buy a scratch ticket and lucky enough to win. Yeah. Well I I, t- I consider the Royal Flesh an achievement. Just because uh, it was. Oh, you willed it? Did you will the ten of diamonds somehow or something? Yeah. It was just. It was just my. I really believe that it was my lack of tilting at Jeff, who had did uh, not deserve to win that hand. He's totally undeserving. Well, I, I will say this: as far as poker goes, and you know, I used to be a tournament scrabble player. Maybe I'll go back into it someday. I think fantasy comes into this not as much as poker and scrabble because they're much more emotional, immediate games. But equanimity is such a huge part of it. It's just staying cool and calm and. And just not being affected, not being adversely affected by things, the, the swings that you're going to have, positive or negative. Uh, my, uh, I shouldn't call my friend, but somebody I follow on Twitter, Andrew Nimi, I think is how you say his name. He's a poker blogger. He talks about things are never really as great as you think they are when you're running good. And things are never really as bad as you think you are when you're running bad. The whole goal to all this 
is just to try to stay as emotionally neutral as you can. I mean, yeah, enjoy your wins. You know, go out, buy a steak dinner, buy your girlfriend something. That's fine. And sure, you can vent a little bit when you're running bad. But when you're in any pursuit, especially if you're playing something like poker, where you need to be, you're, you need to be in the moment. You need to be able to flush out what's just happened. I mean, learn what you can learn. I mean, there be dynamics about the table you need to be aware of. How many chips do people have? How do they play? Where, where are their games at the moment? You need to be aware of that stuff. But the player with the best equanimity is almost always the best player at the table. Yeah, or the one that gets the royal flush in a particular right, casino right. that offers high hand bonuses. That's always the. Uh, it was like a you know one three no limit table. So like the most you could win is like five hundred bucks in like a long session, right? Like, well, tell me, tell me this. What would what would you be prouder if you won two thousand dollars in a handicapping contest or two thousand dollars for an article you wrote or? or yeah, of course, of course. I, I'm not. I'm just kidding. I just like to tell the story because it was just a. It was just. It was just awesome, you know, the way it happened. It was just awesome. And just when you see the card, you're like, holy fuck. And then you're right. like, oh, wait, there's high hand bonuses here. It's uh, just Did fun. Did you win man. a lot of money in the pot? Did anybody contest you? It was, it was, oh, actually, a guy went all in uh, oh, because okay. he was worried. He he had he made his flush because I, I made it on the turn, and he had two spades also. And he was worried that I had, like, just the ace of spades. So he didn't want me to see the river. So uh, he went all in. <laughs> I should have. I mean, <laughs> if I was a dick, I would have been like, mm, the "Let me think about nuts. this. Should I call? I don't know." And then they showed my hand. Every what would you guys do? You know, I didn't do that. I just flipped it over. Should I call with this royal flush that I have when he just went all in with all his money? But yeah, a dude actually did go all in. Also, because I slow played it, I slow played it because because I had the two spades and and I was four to the royal on the flop, and I wanted to make sure if I didn't get it on the turn, I had a chance on the river, right? So I didn't, I just checked. I, I wasn't going to push anybody out uh, yeah. be, because, you know, I didn't want everyone to fold and, and not see the river. You know, of course I checked, right? Like if you're four to the Royal with a high hand bonus and you're playing low stakes, like you can't, you have to check all the way down. So he, you know, he didn't, he went all in. Cause I, I inadvertently suckered him into going all in, but it wasn't my, I didn't mean to. Well, you, you told a poker story, so I'm going to tell a really quick one. Uh, uh, maybe six weeks ago, I already shared this with the the guys in the Rotowire Golf League. But six weeks ago, I'm playing one two no limit. Uh, I'm in late position. I might have even been on the button. I have kings. Uh, there's a there's a limp. Somebody, uh, an older guy, maybe 55 or 60. He's played an hour. I don't know much about him. He's been fairly conservative. He makes it 15 to go. Comes down to me. I, I have kings, so I made it. I think I made it 50. Yeah, 50. Uh, everybody else gets out to the razor and he thinks for a second that he shoves about 300 effective. And I have about that left too. And I'm looking at the guy, I'm trying to think, what do I know about this person? How long has he been sitting here? Do I have any Intel on him? And I, I'm not, I'm not going to over apply it. If, if I don't really have anything, I might just be, you know, blind on this guy. I just haven't played with him that much. So I'm trying to think if I know anything about him, do I, if I played with him before, can I put this bet on some kind of meaning? And I look up, I notice he's, he's a pretty, uh, he's casually dressed, but he's, he's well-dressed. You know, he's got his shirt tucked in. He's got a nice belt on. I mean, he seems like he's probably a professional of some sort. And I notice he had an Aaron Hills 2017 hat, which was the site of the U.S. Open. And at this point, the U.S. Open is like 10 days away. It hasn't even been, been uh, run yet. Okay, and he's already got the U.S. Open hat. Out of state, no less. So I'm thinking, this guy has a U.S. Open hat, you know, weeks before they play the tournament. There's no way he's shoving 300. Anything is an aces. So I fold. 
show my kings. And, uh, and also I asked him if he had aces and he immediately said, yes, again, that could be a million different things. People are full of crap all the time. But, uh, so I folded my kings to his aces, um, felt really good about that. He showed his aces. And then of course, later when I told him very, my poker friends are like, well, you could have called for 15 and seen a flop. <laughs> well, no, you had to raise, but I, I would, right. I would, I would have just shoved in and been like, fuck it and paid it off. <laughs> Well, you know, people like the Grano have said that if you never folded kings pre-flop, you, you probably would rarely be wrong. I mean, the, the odds of you being wrong in that position are right. so slim. Yeah. But if you if you if you knew it, you knew it. You know, sometimes you know something. It felt good, man. It, that was the best. So, so in other words, your great story, you won two thousand dollars. My great story, I, I lost fifty. Yeah, but you basically good. saved two hundred fifty. Is what you did. Yeah, yeah, that's true. It's the same thing as winning. Um, all right, I want to shift to a little football before we knock this out. Um, we, you are going to be in Vegas with me a couple days for the Stopa auction. I'm not going to ask which players. I think with you, it wouldn't even be like that valuable to know which players you like because you'll just stop at a certain point and yeah, move on I will. To the next one. I, that's one of my strategies in an auction is I want, and, and you know this because you've auctioned with me. Not that you're cognizant of it all the time because you're worried about your own stuff, but. I want people when they're in a bid with me, I want them to feel like I could get out at any time. I don't want them to ever feel like, Oh, he's married to this player. No, sometimes you get stuck. It happens a lot in baseball where there's just one guy you have to get. There's nobody left to spend the money on. And it becomes painfully obvious as you've sailed past any logical price, because now it's a contextual price and you just feel like it's written all over your face that you have to spend the most money. You don't want to do it, but you have to. In football, I, I'm going to take what the room gives me. And yeah, there's a couple, there's some guys I like more than others. I mean, you know how I feel about Doug Baldwin, but it's not like I'd walk into the room and say, okay, right. I'm getting Baldwin. I don't care what the price is. If somebody else really liked them and I just decided you know, the way receivers were being priced or the way the board looked, I could do better elsewhere, then I would get out. That And that's the decision. I'm a field player. I all have an idea of what I might want to pay for guys, but I'm not going to have a spreadsheet. I'm not going to have a formula. I'm not going to have a target list. I, I can probably tell you guys I, I probably won't get, but that's based on the fact that I think other people will like them. I mean, I don't like Marshawn Lynch, but if it stopped at the right price, I, I guess I'd jump in. We talked about that in the radio show today, but I am not target-oriented in this, no. Right. I am somewhat more target-oriented. There are some players that I would like to get that I think are good values, but Jeff Erickson, who hosts the show with me, now knows everybody I like, uh, yeah. and so I'm never going to get away unless he's overspent. Like sometimes... If he's overspent or full at a position, then I can get away with it. But I can just never get away with it because it's almost unfair. But like, if he knows that I'm going to go more, well, give me a guy so I can stay out of your way. I mean, Jeff has this advantage. No, 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 don't worry. Nobody listens to this podcast. Yeah, nobody, nobody does listen to this podcast. But I I will tell you, um, like, I like John Brown, right? So like, Jeff knows I like John Brown, and it's like it would be almost malpractice for Jeff if John Brown is at five, if I have him at five, not to say six, right? Because he knows I'm probably going to say seven, right? And so what's he going to do? Just let me have the guy know. He's going to do what he has to do. You know, there's just a few guys like that that I really like. Yeah. Oh, I, by I, the I, way, I, I always felt that if somebody knew who you liked, if somebody had a good sense of where you were at on players, I think it's a lot easier for them to make your life miserable in an auction than it is in a draft. Because when it, comes to your, when it comes to your draft, you just pick who you, they can't stop you when it's your turn. I mean, they can pick the guy earlier if they want, but once you get to pick, nobody's in your way. I, I've found that when I've been in baseball auctions, I try to have my baseball auctions that I run as early as possible when my opinions just aren't plastered all over the place and I haven't said them all over on Twitter and it's just obvious who I like. Because I feel like when players who I like come up, it's just, just a little bell goes off and, and people want they just want to contest me on the bid. 
Yeah, and look, you have to adjust to that. What I end up doing is backing off on guys I want a lot because I feel like they're trying to make me pay a tax on my own opinions. Right, and then you end up getting a team of totally random guys that you hope fails because if it does well, that means your other teams are going to be bad. <laughs> that's, that that's, that's really bad. Like what, It happens to me in the Vegas League, which I don't care because it's 20 bucks each, but basically the Rotowire magazine gets handed out at the Vegas trip. We have this Vegas draft. Nobody's done any prep for football because it's you know July 10th or whatever, July 12th. And so everybody's just drafting off a of my magazine list, right? So all the players I like are going ahead of AD, way ahead of ADP. So when it's my turn, I take someone I would normally not take, right? I'll end up getting every guy in the list of guys that I don't want to draft. And I don't want that team to do well. <laughs> that, that's the thing, right? So for the Stopa League, it, it would be especially bad if people forced me into that by taking all my guys or bidding up all my guys because, you know, that's the team I actually want to do well. So I've either got to overpay for the guys I want or have a team full of guys I don't want. Now, in DFS, I do this all the time. I'll, I will put together a team. One of my lineups will be guys I hate just for experiment, just just because. Who knows? I don't know everything. Maybe these guys I hate will go off. Sometimes it right. makes money. Yeah, I'll do that too. Uh, recently, I played I, – I, the only DFS I'm playing right now is either private games or I play in the Tut Wars DFS because we're not allowed to play otherwise, which is really a shame. But it is what it is. And I'm not a G and Carl Stanton fan, but every once in a while I'll play him. And the, it, I don't know. When, when he'll go over five for me, at least I can say snarky things on Twitter. Like if I DFS G and Carl Stanton every, every week, you know, he'd be out of baseball in like three months. Right. You know, he'd be hitting you know, 158. But anyway, do you feel like football, when a football season is over, do you feel like you're going to have four or five guys who define your season? Or do you, is it kind of year to year it varies? It varies. I, I feel like, at least in football, so random. I really, it's, I can't even, I, I, the last year that was like really amazing in football for me, I think was like 2008. I think I had like Michael Turner and Matt Forte everywhere and it, it just cleaned up. But, um, you know, in baseball, which is usually with the exception this year, like just more skill based and more analytics, your, your, your analysis gets rewarded for doing good. analysis. Yeah. I, I always do better in baseball when I'm not cocky, when I'm a little bit more agnostic than I'd like to be, when I have to kind of just like, okay, I really like, you know, in like 2015, I had a really good year, and I had a lot of Manny Machado and Bryce Harper, but I didn't have a lot. I mean, I have them in every league. I had like two or three shares of Harper, two or three shares of Machado. I had a, you know, I kept getting guys that I liked when they fell. I didn't go after them when they didn't fall. I ended up getting somebody else, and adding it all up, I had this amazing year. And then I got cocky in 2016 because I thought I had the gift of prophecy, and you know sort of pushed harder to get, you know, the same guy, Puig, on like six teams and Brantley, who was hurt, and I thought he was going to be a good discount. And it ended up being, you know, a very mediocre year. So... Yeah, by the way, let me piggyback on that. I yeah. wonder if that happens sometimes. Now, we see a lot now. People, it used to be that, you, you talk about the July draft that people are going to do and that nobody's done a prep. I think a game changer for the industry and just for fantasy players is these MFLs. I know not everybody can do them. and that's It's a shame there's some states that they're not legal, but... These MFL 10s that you can do, or 25s if you want to, or 100s, it gives you a way to mock draft where people have a stake. If you go on any mock draft, it's you know it's the risk of who shows up, who stays, who's engaged, who cares, who doesn't care. People just making dumb picks to make dumb picks. You go into one of these MFLs, everybody has a stake. I mean you know, the entry fee may not be a lot of money. People can still kind of do funky things if they want to. But it's – I think fantastic. I do them for fun, and I do them for you know, kind of market research. Get a sense of how I feel about the player pools. Try different draft slots. I mean, you can't pick your slot, but you know, you try different things from different slots because I want to be ready for the drafts that mean the most to me. I, I would love to get a profit back on my MFLs. If I don't, I don't. 
But I think they changed. Now, now I look at MFLs now. My most commonly drafted player is this running back Washington for the Raiders. Okay, And I find it that there's a certain point in the MFL that I end up drafting him almost every draft to the point that I really have no idea what the market was going to do because I don't really know what the price is on Washington. People like him. Oh, this guy on Twitter seems to like him. This person thinks Lynch is going to be good, whatever. I think the problem you run into sometimes with the MFLs is it can be like if you're on a driving range and you start reinforcing a bad habit, you start doing something wrong at the range, and then you hit 50 shots like that or 100 shots like that, and you've really grooved it in. What if this Washington pick is a bad pick? And I keep thinking – because I've repeated it, I start training my mind to think it's the right pick. It must be the right pick because I keep making it, and he keeps showing up on my teams. And I've, I start imagining how he's going to gallop you know, towards my victory. Like last year, I thought Spencer Ware was going to be that guy, and I still think that was a good call. I still think that lined up. He just, for whatever reason, wasn't as good as I thought. In part, because he couldn't score touchdowns. I don't really know why. But I think you run the risk of if you do a lot of mock drafts, or you do a lot of MFLs or you, you know, before the quote-unquote draft season starts – you could get locked into a bad habit, think it's the right answer when all it is is you're just doing the same thing over and over again and applying some false certainty to it. Uh, it happened to me all the time. I, and, and it's, but the thing is, so, that, so that's one side, right? It, it's kind of random the guy you took. There's a reason that you took him the first time you took him, right? You did some analysis. You weren't attached. You took him. Made sense. It was a good gamble, p- perhaps. The next draft, you're like, yeah, I, I like this guy here. You take him again, and then it becomes a thing. But first off, if the dude does go off, right, if, De- if Marshawn Lynch breaks down and DeAndre Washington has 11 touchdowns and 1,700 yards from scrimmage, like, you're going to win, like, a lot of MFLs, okay? Mm. You're going to cash in big on that, right? And then if you keep that habit throughout your regular draft season, you're going to win off of that, too. And I always think, if I just pick the right guy and get him everywhere, that's the home run, right? When you diversify, although 2015 baseball, I diversified and still got it, but, like, Usually when you diversify, you're going to have some good, some bad. And it's like, well, so what? I'm in 12 leagues and I won two of them, but big deal. That's what I'm supposed to do, right? Like yeah, two, years, two years ago, I gave out AJ Pollock and Jake Arrieta and like banged the drum as loud as I could. And other than the fact that that cost me getting them a couple times in my own leagues, I mean, that was just great. I mean, you know, Pollock was terrific. Arietta, I think, won the Cy Young Award. And then people actually, people never do this. People actually came back to me and said, thank you. And, you know, you gave me Arietta, you gave me Pollock. Um, which you generally you only hear from them when you screw up, but um, yeah, it's a nice feeling when it works. It doesn't happen all that often. Yeah, but it, you know, so that's that's the dream is that it hits. But yeah, you totally can get attached to these guys and think you know they're better than they are just because you you have shares. But it's uh, but I kind of like it. I kind of like having the same guys in every single league. Or at least you know a lot. I like to have a lot of overlap, but I I tend to have better seasons when I'm more humble. You just do the analysis. Be aware of the downside, the upside. Not get, you know, cowardly about it, but just, you know, take take the guys I'm looking for where it worked. And I do, you have a, do you have a strategy to share with people about this is a super flex league that also starts two tight ends? Um, also, are, are you in the, um, the fishbowl, that league that has that inflated scoring for the tight ends where they get extra points for first down caught or something like that? It's my first year in it, and I'm, I'm still trying to get a sense of what the scoring is. But these are differently, I mean, if you're in a, in a public league, you, unless you get some ridiculous value on one of the elite quarterbacks, you just wait and you can pick guys up and you can get a really good quarterback for free and all that stuff. But you know, in Superflex, it's you need good quarterbacks. And in this league, you need to have a plan at tight end. Even if it's not a high price plan, you need to at least have an idea what you're going to do. I like the questions that and this is 14 teams in SOPA this year too. I like that this is the type of league that forces you to ask questions. Also, it's a very limited bench space. 
I've heard you talk very elegantly about the DL problem in baseball, that the idea when you add too many DL spots or unlimited, all it does is screw up the DL replacement pool. And then what's good about that? And then everybody who's ever hurt goes on it. The idea is to force fantasy owners to make as many decisions as possible. And then you're more likely to have a worthy champion. Yeah. No, I, you, you and I both are lockstep on this and, People don't realize when you make the league easier, you make it easier for everybody, so it's easier for nobody. When you make the league harder, you make it harder for everybody, so it's harder for nobody. Um, the smarter you are, the more the harder you want, right? Because then you know the hard screws up people. They don't. They start to feel like, oh, I have to hold on to this guy and have a dead spot. Whereas you're not doing that. You're willing to cut a guy that may be painful, but you're maxing out your roster spots and you're getting an edge from that. Whereas you know everybody knows what to do with the DL, and then it becomes more luck because because there's no replacement on the DL because every single player is owned when you lose a player you're just shit out of luck and then it just becomes a war of attrition rather than you know maneuverability when you have someone hurt there is somebody to pick up you may have to cut someone you don't want to but there is somebody to pick up and you can make moves and stay alive despite bad luck you can overcome the adversity you're more likely to overcome the adversity that's how i define a good fantasy league if you're never cutting a player who you don't want to cut then there's something wrong with the settings you should sometimes i'm not saying you should have to cut great players but you should sometimes have to make cuts that you don't want to make and have rostered you know i have a problem now in the friends and family league i have guys coming off the dl who i have to play but i don't want to cut anybody so i'm gonna wait a couple days to see if anybody gets hurt and then eventually i'll have to make a decision i mean i can try to make a two for one but nobody's gonna go for that i also think there's this going to be a rule in here somewhere. I I believe in drafting earlier than the general consensus. I'm not saying you get drafted in May. I mean, that's kind of silly. But I like the fact that the Stopa draft is in July. And I've always said that, look, every good player doesn't want to draft early. Some good players do. Some good players don't. But every bad player wants to draft late in the summer. They want the definition. They want to know explicitly who's won jobs and who's ahead of who on the dra- on the depth chart to start the season. So maybe the good owners don't all agree, but you have the bad owners in agreement. And when you draft early, the bad owners don't like it. That, to me, is a tip-off that drafting early is actually a good thing. No, I love the Stopa League. I love par- Part of the reason I like it is because it's challenging. I think the 14 teams is just going to be sick because with the QB flex, it's going to really – there's going to be some serious scarcity. Uh, and it's, there's going to be some, some hard decisions. But also, um, I like that it's early because – I think what happens is by mid-August, there's sort of this gravitational pull of ADP, right? The ADP, yeah. I try to avoid it, ignore it, not know it almost. But it, just doing what we do, we're around it so much. Like you start to, it starts to seep in. Oh, this guy's a second rounder. This guy's a third rounder. This guy's a late third rounder. And that stuff, A, it affects you. You start to think of them that way. You try not to, but it, it affects you. Um, and B, it, it affects everybody. And the draft comes goes more or less to script, right? and it's like just it becomes like there's less decisions. You're you're sort of well, do I jump ADP here or not? But you're totally aware of it. Whereas when nobody really knows the ADP, it's just a free for all. And I think there's like a way better you have a way better chance of getting great values before people are on to other players that move up. I would I would draft in July all day, and you're gonna you know you'll you'll take a hit with some guys going down in training camp, but it also is kind of why. You know, don't draft a kicker or a defense. Get like five, get like five running back backups. Get five DeAndre Washington types, and just you know, one of them may cash in in August before the season even starts. Yeah, it's fun. This auction, it's an offline auction. You know, we're all in the same room, which is the best way to do it if you can figure out a way to do it. But also because we're early enough in the season, the ADPs haven't crystallized yet. I mean, think about when you normally draft. Most drafts are online. You're in a draft room. And everybody, I, I guess you could maneuver the list if you wanted to, but I think there's a value in knowing what everybody's probably looking at. 
And what's everybody looking at? Everybody knows that, like, say, Mike Gillisley is the next running back off the top of the board. So even if people aren't picking Mike Gillisley, you know they're at least staring at his name and they're thinking about him. He's present in their mind. Where when we go to uh, the Stopa thing, everybody's going to have whatever they're working on. Now, some people may have the same sources. You, know, you and Jeff may know that you're both using RotoWire software or something. Or, you know, but there's going to be basically 14 teams. There may be nine or 10 different sources of player lists that are being used. So it's not this case of, you know, Mike Gillisley could be first on your list or my list, but he could be 13th on somebody else's list. Right. That's and a good point. I, I don't, that's a good thing. I like that. It's a good point that we're not using a commission service with a list that we're sharing. That is a very good point. It really does change the dynamic of the draft. Absolutely, man. All right, Scott, I kept you long enough. Uh, I know you got something to do in a couple minutes. Uh, I appreciate it filling in and, uh, let's do it again soon, man. We'll, we'll catch up and I'll see you in Vegas in a few days. Yeah. I look forward to it. How, how did, um, how did your travel work? I know you, you were delayed at some point in New York. Did you get through it okay? Or was it, did you have to stay there? The itinerary worked great. Got on the plane. It was on time. Took a cab. One airport to the other. It was like 130 bucks. It wasn't backbreaking. Had enough uh, time getting early to JFK to get a steak and a martini and fries, which was just so good. I hadn't had like a real... Well, you know, US, I, could, I could never I never eat in a plane. I'm just afraid that my stomach isn't going to be able to take it. No, I, I, I've just made a, you you. Know, an eight hour flight. It's a long time not to eat. But I just yeah. I just made a rule. I, I'm out on that. It's like, you know, I, I joke about this. I'm like, you never regret having gone for a run. You might not want to go for a run. But when you're done, you're never like, oh, I wish I hadn't done that. And it's the opposite for airplane food. You're always like, oh, disgusting. I'm already stuck in the space. Now I ate the disgusting airplane food. Anyway, everything was good. I had a great steak. I had a martini. I was relaxed. I mean, I was tired, but whatever. Get on the plane, and it's on the tarmac for like two hours. And this is after an eight-hour flight with a five-year-old and an hour car ride in between and security twice and all that shit. But yeah, it worked out all right. It was just, you know, obviously when you're sitting, you don't know when you're going to take off. You're starting to freak. But it was fine. You know, I used all miles. I didn't have to pay for it. And uh yeah, everything was everything was better, you know, better than expected. Aside from that, two hours of hell. Sweet. Well, hey, safe travels to Vegas, and uh, we will continue this discussion in a couple of days. All right, man. Thanks, Scott. Take it easy. See you, buddy.